Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, the Florida Council of Arts and Culture, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, we'll visit Bach Tower Gardens in Lake Wales. Bach wanted the centerpiece of his gardens to be the world's most beautiful tower. We'll discuss WPA documentation of the turpentine industry. If you read through these papers, you'll see that the process was extremely difficult. Extracting that sap was very, very difficult. And we'll look at the development of Florida's railroad system. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. If sea levels were to rise to the point where the coastline of Florida was submerged, our peninsular state would become a series of islands. At the heart of one of those islands, a neo-Gothic tower of coquina and marble would rise 205 feet into the sky. Bach Tower Gardens near Lake Wales is on one of the highest points in the state, 298 feet above sea level. President Calvin Coolidge presided over the dedication of the Singing Tower and its adjacent bird sanctuary and gardens on February 1, 1929. The facility was conceived and built by Edward Bach as a gift to the American people for the opportunities he had been given. Bach was born in 1863 in Donshelder, Netherlands. He immigrated to the United States with his family in 1870. He grew from a boy who didn't speak English to become a confidant of American presidents and a friend to literary figures such as Mark Twain and Rudyard Kipling. He made a fortune in publishing. Brian Asoski is Director of Marketing and Public Relations at Bach Tower Gardens. Edward Bach came to this country from the Netherlands when he was just six years old, immigrated with his family up to the uh, Pennsylvania area. And um, he loved to write and uh, eventually became a publisher. You know, started uh, in the publishing industry, worked his way in from the ground up. Uh, at 26 years old, he became the editor-in-chief of the Ladies Home Journal magazine, uh, which was the first magazine in the world to have over a million subscribers. So over the course of his life, he was interested in writing and in architecture and in beauty. And at a very young age, his grandmother told him to make you the world a bit better or more beautiful because you've lived in it. And so Edward Bach pretty much lived his life that way. And uh, when he got older and had the financial means available to him, he decided that the property adjacent to the Mountain Lake Sanctuary area where he uh, had a winter home would be a good place to make the world more beautiful and to leave his mark. So he decided to build Bach Tower Gardens uh, at that time and um, sort of the rest is, rest is history. That was in 1929 when the gardens were completed. Bach would come from Pennsylvania to spend his winters near Lake Wales. He enjoyed watching sunsets from Iron Mountain and decided to stop plans to build a housing development there by purchasing the land. 
He hired landscape architect Frederick Law Olmsted Jr. to transform a sand hill into a lush and thriving garden sanctuary. Olmsted worked with his father, who designed New York's Central Park. He landscaped many of the most prominent landmarks in Washington, D.C., and served as the first director of the National Park Service. It took Olmsted six years to create the Bach Tower Gardens, bringing in rich soil, developing an elaborate irrigation system, and planting acres of carefully selected trees, plants, and flowers. The pathways through the gardens all led to the Singing Tower. The idea was to slowly reveal things to guests as they walk through the gardens. Uh, so the gardens back then, when they were first uh, dedicated uh, and completed, were much smaller than they are today. Um, the original entrance was in a different place. But the pathways were all specifically meant to be meandering. And you would slowly go around corners uh, in anticipation of what you would see next. All the while, you might catch a glimpse of the tower and then it would disappear behind some oaks or behind some other, uh, other types of trees. Um, so you would start and then finish at the tower. That would sort of be the culmination of your journey through uh, Olmsted's original garden. When the tower comes into full view, it is a spectacular sight. The tower is a combination of Gothic and Art Deco influences made of coquina stone from St. Augustine and pink and gray marble from Georgia. It was designed by architect Milton B. Maderi, who also created the Washington Memorial Chapel at Valley Forge, Pennsylvania, and the Justice Department building in Washington, D.C. Carved into the tower is a unique combination of sacred, secular, and distinctly Floridian images. The bird, animal, and floral depictions were created by sculptor Lee Laurie, best known for his Atlas statue at Rockefeller Center in New York. Brian Ososki. Bach wanted uh, the centerpiece of his gardens to, ha to be the world's most beautiful tower. The story goes that there was talk about putting a water tower up in the gardens because back then we didn't have the modern day irrigation that we have today. And Bach would have nothing, nothing of it, having a water tower in the garden. So he hired architect uh, and fellow Philadelphian Milton B. Maderi to, hire, uh, to, to build uh, the world's most beautiful tower. And it served several purposes. One, of course, there are still water tanks in the tower that were used to irrigate the gardens in the early years. Uh, two, to serve as the centerpiece of the gardens. And three, to house the 60-bell carillon. Um, he remembered carillons from his childhood home in the Netherlands uh, because, you know, half of the world's carillons are in the Low Country. And so uh, he felt that that would be a, sort of a good iconic centerpiece uh, for, for the gardens. But yeah, the design, Maderi brought with him uh, three uh, master craftsmen to assist in the design of the tower. Lee Laurie, as you mentioned, was the sculptor. J.H. Dulles Allen did the tile work. And Samuel Yellen uh, did all of the uh, metal work, was a master iron worker. Uh, of the day. So what you see in the tower, yes, there is a lot of animals, uh, a lot of different species of, of wildlife. I mean, Bach's instruction to Maderi and the craftsmen were to make the tower beautiful and to have it reflect nature. And that's exactly what they were able to do. Metalworker Samuel Yellen crafted the large brass doors on the north side of the tower that depict the story of creation, as well as the wrought iron gates leading to the doors. On the south side of the tower, Yellen contributed to the sundial that features a bronze snake amid the signs of the zodiac and Roman numerals that display the time of day. Yellen's work can be seen on college campuses including Yale, Harvard, and Princeton, and on numerous churches including the Washington National Cathedral.
Tile maker J. H. Dulles Allen created the elaborate floor of the tower and added color to the top third of the structure. Walking through the gardens, a visitor might hear the tower before they see it. The Singing Tower houses one of only 600 carillons in the world. It has 60 bronze bells, the largest of which weighs about 12 tons. A keyboard instrument at the top of the tower is attached to clappers which strike the bells, creating music. We took a very small elevator to the top of the tower where carillonor Geert de Hollander pounded levers and stomped on pedals to send music throughout the gardens. A lot of people, you know, are curious as to what's inside the Singing Tower. So there's several levels. Uh, when you first enter behind the great brass door, uh, which was Samuel Yellen's sort of crowning jewel uh, of the metalwork, the door incidentally uh, depicts the story of creation in Genesis, and it's made of solid teak and brass and weighs approximately 1,100 pounds. Uh, so behind that door is what we refer to as the Founder's Room, uh, once Edward Bach's private study. Moving up from there, we, you will have the uh, Anton Breeze Carillon Library and the Chow Research Center. So all of Bach Tower Garden's archives are housed in the tower, and we also have one of the world's largest collections of Carillon-related books, tapes, manuscripts, and that sort of thing. So that's housed in the tower. On another level, there is a maintenance workshop. One of the levels houses the uh, big iron water tanks uh, that I had described earlier that used to uh, irrigate the gardens. And as we move up, we get to the playing studio, the Carolineur's studio. Uh, Geert de Hollander from Belgium is our Carolineur. Uh, he's been with us since 2012 um, and is one of the best Carolineurs in the world. Has won all sorts of international competitions. Uh, he, he now uh, judges competitions and also teaches master classes and is a guest performer all over the world. So we're very lucky to have Geert here with us. So his studio is there. That's here where he works and where he composes and that kind of thing. And he also has the best view of the gardens you can ever imagine. And then uh, directly above the, the studio is the playing cabin uh, where the instrument is, is housed. Uh, the instrument itself is, a, is referred to as a clavier. It looks very much like a cross between a piano and an organ. Instead of keys, you have what we call batons, and they're situated much like the white keys and the black keys on a, on a piano. Attached to each of those batons, or levers, there is a, uh, a line that connects through the ceiling to clappers on the inside of the bells. The bells are made of bronze. Uh, we have 60 bells with a combined weight of over 60 tons, so it really is uh, one of the world's heavier instruments, and uh, because of its weight, it's able to really project that beautiful sound. Geert de Hollander is director of Carillon Services at Bach Tower Gardens and plays the instrument located on the top floor of the tower. My dad is a Carillonar too. So I grew up climbing towers since I was four or five years old. Not interested in bells, interested in secret doors and steps and owls and bats and everything, you know, if you find in Europe. Uh, so I'm, I was born in Belgium. Um, and then by the time I was 13, my dad, who was also an instructor at the Carillon School, said, I'm gonna take you to the school. And so I combined that with high school, graduated when I was 17, 
And he said, I'm going to show you the most beautiful instrument in the world. And he flew me from Brussels straight to Lake Wales. The Hollander explains what makes the carillon at Bachtower Gardens unique among the world's 600 carillons. There are beautiful bells all over the world, but there is always something else going wrong. Like uh, the carillon I played before Antwerp Cathedral was in the middle of the city. And everybody, you know, it's, it's the first thing you hear when you stop playing music is noise because it's in the middle of a city. So it's not nice for a musician. It's difficult for our listeners to find a quiet spot, etc. So this here, this tower in this sanctuary is unique in the world. Nowhere else you'll find this. The, the gardens are like a natural concert hall. No traffic, beautiful peace, serene. I mean, it's, it's just, it's, it's a dream for me to play, to perform. And it's, it's a dream for the listeners because they can hear every single note, no matter how quiet I play. In addition to the carillon music that rings from the tower, many varieties of flowers, plants, and trees attract visitors to Bach Tower Gardens. Brian Asoski. The gardens, like many gardens, are seasonal. I think uh, a lot of people know us best for our azalea collection, which, you know, the azaleas, they bloom in February and March, typically. It's one of the busiest times of the year for us when we're in peak bloom. We have uh, over 100 different varieties of camellias as well, and when the azaleas and the camellias, their blooms overlap, it's just a spectacular uh, display of color. We have uh, a lot of different types of ferns, of course the oaks and the pines. The lands surrounding us are the original sand hill habitat of the Lake Wales Ridge, so you'll see a lot of uh, original plantings outside of the core gardens much like you would have seen authentic Florida over 100,000 years ago when this was an island and we were surrounded by the ocean. A lot of Florida natives, a few tropicals, but more uh, plants that are native to Florida. A lot of blooming varieties. There's always something different in the gardens to see throughout the year and every season. Of course, the palms uh, of many varieties. And all these plants, all the flora and fauna, attract a lot of different birds. Edward Bach died in January 1930, less than a year after Bach Tower Gardens opened, and he is buried at the base of the tower. Today, Bach Tower Gardens hosts events throughout the year, operates a rare plant conservation program, and an active education program. We spoke with Brian Asoski and Carolinar Geert de Hollander. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Don't miss the television series version of Florida Frontiers, airing monthly on great public television stations, including WUCF-TV Orlando, WFSU-TV Tallahassee, and WJCT-TV Jacksonville. More information about the Florida Frontiers television series is on our website at myfloridahistory.org, and you can also like us on Facebook for the latest updates. All of you long time around us, better lie down, you better lie down and you better lie down, better lie down and take your rest. That's a song collected in 1937 by the WPA as they were documenting the lives of turpentine industry workers in Florida. 
Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources at the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, you have here some other WPA documentation of the turpentine industry. Yeah, that's right. And when we uh, refer to turpentine, we're talking about the uh, process by which workers would extract a fluid from pine trees, usually longleaf pine and slash pine, which grow, they're indigenous trees that grow in Florida and throughout the southeastern United States, in fact, most of the eastern seaboard along the Gulf as well. And that fluid, it's, it's a sap essentially that's collected from the trees. It's then processed into uh, what we call turpentine and also pitch. And there are several different names for the material that's processed from the uh, pine sap because it's used and was used historically for a number of different commercial applications. And the extraction of this material really dates back uh, to the earliest uh, colonial uh, days here in Florida and throughout the United States. But it really didn't come into uh, commercial practice until about the mid-19th century. Most of the techniques that were later employed in Florida in the late 19th and early 20th centuries uh, originated in North Carolina. And when the longleaf pine trees were essentially used up, because the process is fairly destructive, at least in the early days it was, the trees would die and workers and industry, the industry rather, would move south into Florida. And that's when, uh, really in the late 19th and, and early 20th century, that's when the industry essentially took off. Now, the process of extracting this sap to produce turpentine really begins with a person going out into these longleaf pine groves, essentially, where, where the pine trees would go. And the longleaf pine is an old-growth tree, so it takes decades to mature. So these are huge old-growth pine trees. Uh, a gentleman would go out with a, a very sharp tool, and he would, uh, what's known as chipping, they would chip a face into the tree. And usually that was a notch in the shape of a V. They would cut the bark off, they would notch the V, and then place tin, some kind of metal, uh, a gutter basically, underneath that chip. The sap would leach out of the chip, flow down into the gutters, into some kind of cup. Originally, they used metal cups. Uh, later, they, they employed what was called a hurdy-style cup. It was actually a pottery cup, and you can find these now throughout Florida, uh, broken hurdy cups. The sap was then transferred to a, a larger container, and then again to a larger barrel, usually a wooden barrel that was about 50 gallons. The barrel was then loaded onto mules. The mule wagons would then carry these 50-gallon drums to a processing still, and these stills were all over Florida. Now, you have here some original typewritten reports from WPA workers who were looking at the turpentine industry in Florida. Yeah, that's right. Uh, during the Great Depression, the, the 1930s, a lot of workers were employed by the federal government in the different WPA projects. The WPA is the Works Progress Administration, one of the New Deal programs in the U.S. And the Federal Writers Project employed a lot of these historians, anthropologists, writers, photographers to travel around the state. Uh, what we're actually looking at today are the original notes from two photographers who, in 1939, visited one of these turpentine mills and uh, camps throughout the mill uh, in Cross City, which is in uh, Dixie County, Florida. And this is one of the largest operations in that region. Um, they interviewed and, and photographed uh, workers in all different parts of the process, uh, from the, the foreman, the woods riders, they were known, these gentlemen who would ride on horseback throughout the, the thousands of acres of, of pine forest, checking to make sure that the faces were cut properly uh, and checking on the progress. Uh, all the way down to the family members of these turpentine workers who lived out uh, really in the woods in these camps. Uh, now, these two photographers, one was uh, a gentleman by the name of Robert Cook, who's a fairly well-known uh, WPA photographer. And then we have another uh, gentleman by the name of Mr. Duncan. We don't know exactly who he was. Uh, but along with their 
300 some odd photographs that they uh, submitted to the WPA, they provided these narrative accounts of their explorations into the camps, if you will. And they spent uh, about 12 hours there. In fact, they actually uh, met with Zora Neale Hurston, the famous anthropologist and writer who was also working for the Federal Writers Project. Uh, Hurston submitted her own narrative of of the uh, turpentine camps, and she interviewed a number of the family members. But I'll read here just an excerpt from Mr. Duncan's account. And this gives you kind of an idea of the, the living conditions that these folks are living and working in. He says here, quote, The second camp we visited was most interesting. It is on a broad sand elevation against a dark jungle of cabbage palms and hardwoods. The other three sides are boggy pine woods. The light pine shacks are set in rows, forming a horseshoe with a mule stockade at the far end and a commissary at the entrance, along with the plain, neat house of the commissary keeper and his family. The gulf was about a mile and a half distant through the jungle. It was about 4.30 and everything, including the three big mules, were in. The sky was cloudy and dark and the camp very quiet, except for the voices in the commissary. The yards of the cabin are of a barren white sand, and with the assorted faces in the doorway, the picture recalls early plantations. This is not to infer that the turpentine workers are really slaves, but I don't mind suggesting that they are the lowest strata of legally free humans, unquote. So, you know, this is a middle-class educated person coming into these camps. Now, keep in mind the majority, the vast majority of these turpentine camp workers are African-American. They're poor, usually uneducated. Their families often had very little chance of even gaining education. And they worked extremely long hours in brutal conditions. If you read through these papers, you'll see that the process was extremely difficult. Extracting that sap was very, very difficult. But there were tens of thousands of people engaged in, in this practice throughout the the rural area of Florida. What's also interesting about the process itself in a lot of these camps is that the workers were not paid in money. They were not paid in paper or coin money, but rather company coins. They could only be redeemed at these commissary stores. I mentioned in the narrative the commissary, as he describes it, along the Pine Barrens, and the commissaries where they would keep a lot of these goods, but workers uh, were often paid very little and ended up uh, becoming indebted to these company stores. And in fact, in Florida, for a number of years, it was illegal for someone to leave a job if they owed money to the store. So it really was a form of of peonage for a lot of these workers, and, and it was very very, very difficult conditions. Now, the turpentine industry was very important in Florida in the early 20th century, but not so much today, right? Yeah, that's right. In fact, according to the uh, 1939 WPA publication, The Southernmost Guide to Florida, they cite that Florida was responsible for 20% of the world's turpentine supplies. So they produced quite a bit. And that was the case for most of the early 20th century. But really, after the Second World War into the 1960s and 70s, uh, when a lot of the products that uh, turpentine would have been used for, paint thinners, things like that, they were being replaced with more easily accessible synthetic compounds. So the industry kind of died out. And had it not been for these WPA workers, we really uh, would have no idea what uh, this huge, vast majority of the the population of Florida living in these rural conditions, we really would have no idea what that experience was like. Thanks a lot, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources at the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Captain, call you, you got to. This is Florida Frontiers. Railways have been an important part of Florida's infrastructure since the late 1800s. Robert Casanello from robertcasanello.com has this look at the development of Florida's railways. 
before modern forms of communication, the bell would be rung typically when the train is uh, is arriving or departing as a way just to let folks uh, within hearing distance know that the train is, is coming. Bells were common back then. I mean, time kept time was kept generally in town with bells. Uh, this kind of communication was not was not unusual. Church bells were a central part of of life in some ways in this time before electronic communication. Uh, so it was not an unusual way in which to communicate messages. That was Dr. Mark Long, associate professor of history and social science with the Sea Education Association. He talked to me about the impact of railroads after the Civil War in Florida. Here he tells me about the impact that early developers like Henry Flagler and Henry Plant had on Florida railroads. The significant building of railroads began after the Civil War, uh, in, on the peninsula in particular. The two main lines were the Florida East Coast Line uh, that Henry Flagler built, uh, beginning sort of basically from, from Jacksonville south, ultimately to Key West. Uh, but his empire was built uh, by advancing the East Coast Railroad ever further south and then building large hotels to attract tourists. I mean, what, what he was building his business on was tourist travel more than freight travel. Uh, and he needed destinations for these tourists to go to. So some of the great hotels in Florida were built by railroad magnates. And then the, the plant line ran basically from the East Coast over to Tampa and sort of on the same system, right, trying to, to bring people into to Tampa. A um, huge hotel built, I think the largest wooden structure uh, in, in the day was built uh, by Flagler down in Palm Beach, and the second largest was built by plant uh, in, in Tampa. So they're building enormous hotels to try and, again, attract northern tourists. Professor Long explains the impact of railroads on early transportation networks. Eventually, they became more uh, sort of mundane, I guess is the term I would use, to, to sort of just facilitate uh, travel for not just for northern tourists, but for people within the state. Uh, in particular, there's a, the line, the Atlantic line that runs from Sanford south, connects Orlando and Winter Park and, and Maitland, all the stops that, that, are, that the Amtrak uses now were, were stops that were built in the late 19th century, uh, and they connected through Sanford early on, was connecting to the river. So people, everything would sort of come via train to Sanford and then go from train to boat. And then eventually the, the railroad was built from Sanford north as well. And, then, and so the train begins to cut off the river in terms of a means of transportation. And it became much more like what we imagine trains to be now. Train stations had a great impact on local communities. It takes on, in some ways, almost mythic importance. It is the, the site uh, that connects your town to a, a broader world. This is a time before roads were anything like usable uh, means of, of transportation to, to distant places. And so uh, either you were on a, uh, you know, in a seaport and you were connected by boat or you had a train station. And the train station was a sign of success for your town. I mean, a lot of towns did not have train stations, and they envied those who did because it brought with it business opportunities. It brought with it, you know, all the, a lot of the things that market relationships themselves bring. Right? It is, a, in some ways, a nexus and a symbol for that integration into a broader national and international market. And as a result, it's something that every town uh, or most towns w would want. They would fight for the right to, to be a stop on the train line. Uh, it meant a great deal to a town to have a station because it, you know, it was a place that, that um, it was, a, again, a, a node that brought in a lot of um, business opportunities and cash. Professor Long talks about how much influence railroad developers had from one town to another. Once that train stop moved, that town became a ghost town. Everybody would literally pack up. They would tear the buildings down, put the lumber on a, on a railroad track, and, and move to the, the, the new town, the new location for the rail stop. And the same thing happens in Florida. You know, these towns... 
um, want the train depot to be in their town because it again is symbol that they are they will become the local hub of the market. Farmers will go to town A with a train stop because that's where they can sell their crops uh, more easily and for a higher price rather than going to town B who does not have a, a train station. So they you know again not only a sign of political importance but a sign of economic power. That was Dr. Mark Long. I interviewed him and others for the podcast series, A History of Central Florida. You can find it online and at iTunes. I am Robert Casanello with Florida Frontiers. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org, join the conversation on Facebook, and check out our podcast. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Robert Casanello. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, the Florida Council of Arts and Culture, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.